You're listening to the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Hey, hello. I'm like in your brain or in by your ears. Uh, this is just a note to say that the podcast you're about to listen to is brought to you by the dudes at Motorola. Okay. Enjoy, dude. Jonas Seas. Hey, Joe. Cameron Riley. How are ya? Good, Cameron. How about yourself? Good, thanks, mate. The first time I tried to call you, my Skype bombed out, so, uh, looks like it's working okay this time. My recording seems to be working. Are you ready Excellent. to do this little thing? I certainly am. Excellent, mate. Well, welcome to the show, Joe. How you doing, man? What's, uh, what's it like being, uh, one of the top horror writers in the world? I wouldn't know. <laughs> hey, I've just been reading the reviews of uh, Heretic, your latest book mm-hmm. on Amazon. It's getting good reviews, man. You've got to be happy about that. I'm very happy. It's uh, It was interesting because two of my, oh, I guess, major influences, icons, what have you, that you call uh, Clive Barker and Peter Straub, both sent emails and agreed to blurb the cover of the book, which was just a tremendous boost for me, both ego-wise and, you know, personal satisfaction-wise, because there are two guys that I've just uh, admired and, and enjoyed their writing for years, and here they are telling me that, you know, hey, I did an okay job on this one. <laughs> yeah, you got to be happy about that. How, do, how does that sort of thing happen? Do you, do you, does you or the, the publisher of the book send them a copy and ask them to review it? It actually happens both ways. Uh, in this instance, I happen to know Peter from my time as president of the Horror Writers Association, and then my publisher had sent the book over to Clive, and uh, we had run into each other in an, in an event in L.A., and it turns out he's a huge Templar fan. So as soon as he found out that's what the book was about, he couldn't wait to get his hands on it. He read it pretty quick and then got back to my publisher agreeing to uh, give us a cover blurb. Well, let's, uh, I guess that's a good entree for us to tell the listeners a little bit about the book. Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. And, oh, you just um, get into the fun stuff. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's all fun. I mean, as I, as I sent you that email the other day saying it's a great prologue. It's one of the best prologues I think I've ever written. It, Thanks. It uh, grabs you by the short and curlies, which is good. Now, uh, I, I mean, I'm somebody who doesn't read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of books, but um, I've got 30, 40 books on the go at any time. But it's very rare that actually the only other fiction book I'm reading at the moment is A Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's unusual for me to really get into uh, many fictional novels, but I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and I think it's um, very fast action. And I, I saw it described uh, as sort of part religious thriller, part military thriller. Is that do you think that's accurate? How would you describe I th- it? I, I think that is accurate. Um, my model, so to speak, had been the work of an Australian writer, actually uh, Matt Riley. Who wrote uh, Ice Station Temple? And his take was to write thriller, and his main character is a uh, Marine recon uh, personnel. And his idea was to write a thriller that just is nonstop. Just you know, every time you hit the end of a chapter, something pushes you on to the next one. Yep. My particular foray happens to be writing horror, writing about the supernatural, and so I sought to find a way to combine both sort of a military thriller where you've got this team of, for all intents and purposes, as a special forces or, or SWAT team with the supernatural on the outside. Um, for for uh, your listeners, uh, the book itself, the series itself, the Templar Chronicles, is about 
the Knights Templar resurrected as a secret combat squad for the Vatican, and it's their job to defend mankind from the supernatural, despite the fact that most of mankind doesn't know they exist. So I went for that, you know, hard, fast punch of the military thriller, but with the dark side of the supernatural kind of combined with. Now, and, and I love that. I mean, I, number one, I love um, Templar history as well. I, I've read. I think I read Holy Blood and the Holy Grail and those books going back 15 years ago whenever they first came out and have been fascinated with, with the whole subject. So it, it, it's, and, and I, obviously with the whole Dan Brown thing a couple of years ago, I guess there's a lot of people out there who may have never heard of the Knights Templar before that are now, you know, sort of a little bit educated about a little bit more of the history of the, the Catholic Church and the Vaticans and the Templars. Do you expect to see uh, a, a big wave of readers sort of come through the Dan Brown line into this book? Well, it's, it's kind of a funny coincidence because uh, with most novels, you know, the book is written anywhere from 18 to 24 months before publication. So Heretic had been written and turned in before um, uh, the whole Angels and Demons and, and the whole Da Vinci Code really, you know, became super popular. So in one way, I was kind of like, oh, you know, I'm going to be looked at as a copycat because the book will come out after Dan Brown's work. On the flip side of that, though, you know, when you've got movies like National Treasure with Nicolas Cage and, like you said, you know, bringing the whole idea of Templar history to the forefront, even with uh, the movie Kingdom of Heaven, which took a historical look at, at some of the role the Templars played in the Crusades, uh, you've got, you know, increased interest around the topic, both from a historical standpoint and from a fictional standpoint. So I said, heck, I'm just going to ride the wave. Um, and it's been fun. We have gotten people who have said, you know, hey, I enjoyed this. Maybe I'll like this. Obviously, Heretic is, is a bit darker than Dan's works, but uh, I, think, I think it's just as fun. Yeah, I mean, Da Vinci Code, uh, you know, didn't have the, uh, the the horror aspect. It was just a straight thriller, right? Yours has got a huge yeah. horror aspect to it, which is fun. Well, and you'll certainly see more. You know, I think it was Time Magazine last week that had an article about some of the knockoffs, so to speak, that will come out in 2006, and there's six to eight different books that are slated for publication between January and March from a wide variety of U.S. publishers that will tackle that same kind of historical aspect. So I think it's going to get even more popular as we go into 2006 rather than less. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there was a lot of, uh, one of the things that may have driven the, the sales of Brown's book was this whole debate over the historical accurateness, is that the right word, <laughs> accuratability of the book, whereas uh, your book's a straight out-and-out novel. But I, I, I was interested to ask you what, the, uh, what kind of research you did in, in preparing for the book. Well, I read a lot of the traditional histories of the order itself, uh, you know, Dungeon, Fire, and Sword, and Holy Blood, Holy Grail, like you mentioned, The Rise and Fall of the Templars. I mean, these are all classic books that deal with the order. My uh, personal difficulties, you know, here's a militant church order that was excommunicated and disbanded in the 14th century. And I wanted to set it in modern times. So I had to find some way to take, you know, that historical aspect and update it to the current timeline. Um, and then, you know, one of the wrinkles involved is the fact that it was the Pope himself, Pope Clement V, and the King of France, King Philip, who basically tore down the order. So to have them in modern times acting as an arm of the Vatican was a bit of a, a twist, you know. <laughs> um, so 
throughout the next couple books, readers will be introduced a bit more to the history of the order and what went on between the 14th century and the 20th century when they come back a little bit more into the public eye and, and when my novels are set. Um, I... I enjoyed the history. I enjoyed the research. I mean, like you said, you know, I've been a fan of the Templars from years, and it's always been interesting. You know, what happened to them? Where did their treasure fleet go? You know, were they heretical or not heretical? All these kind of historical questions revolve around the order, and to be able to take, you know, and place my own little twist on all that was just a, a just real joy to work with. Um, but what I tried to do is maintain, you know, the historical aspects of the organization, their hierarchy, their structure, the rule under which the knights operated and modernize all that so that folks who are familiar with the order can say, hey, hey you know, if it had existed to pro- modern time, it might have actually looked like this in some way or another. Yeah, it, it seems to me to be a fascinating um, um, uh, historical premise to mine, uh, particularly the conspiracy theory angles that open themselves up when you go down this path. And and. It's surprising to me that, to the best of my knowledge, nobody's really tapped into that in the last uh, sort of 20 years. You know, in a post-X-Files world, uh, you know, you would have thought that somebody would have taken this and created a a television series or more films about it. Exactly. When I started talking about the book before publication, you know, I, I attend a fair number of horror conventions throughout the U.S., you know, the World Horror Convention, Horrifying, the World Fantasy Convention, you know, all these, these get-togethers of writers and readers. And, uh, you know, inevitably when I would introduce, you know, hey, in, in October my new book is coming out, this is what it is about, four or five writers in the room would all go, oh, I wish I'd thought of that, you know, because it is so ripe with possibilities. And you're right, you know, in a, in a post-X, Files world, and that's just such an enjoyable genre to, to, to adventure in. Yeah, there's so much history there, and so many unanswered questions around, you know, did they go underground, did they form the Freemasons, uh, right. you know, why were they really wiped out by the Pope, etc., etc. So, man, I want to talk to you about, I've, I've only ever interviewed one or two uh, novelists before, and, and writers fascinate me, I mean, it's... The amount of discipline and effort that must go into completing a novel like this, I, I'm in awe of. I, I find it very difficult these days to, to write a page, uh, to, concentra- <laughs> to concentrate and, and not read my email long enough to actually write a page. Tell us a little bit about um, how long you've been writing and, and how you got into writing. This is, is this your second book? This is my um, second book. I've also written a joint collection of short stories, so it's my second novel, my third book, so to speak. Okay. Um, I wrote my first one back in college on a dare over a case of beer. So I get into writing in a completely odd and, and unplanned manner. It was one of those things where I'd read a book, I absolutely hated it. I wouldn't stop talking about how much I hated it. So my roommate said, you know, well, I bet you can't do better. So uh, for three months, uh, in between classes, late at night as I worked a part-time security job, um, I would write a novel longhand on legal pads. And when I was done, I won my case of beer. We promptly enjoyed it. And the novel went into a shoebox and lay forgotten for over 10 years. After I got married, we were cleaning the uh, garage one day, and my wife found my trunk with you know a variety of older materials in it. She found the shoebox, and, and we got into a discussion. And she said, hey, you, know, you should try to clean this up a little, type it into a computer, and, and send it out and see what happens. Um, so I was very, very fortunate in the fact that it was picked up by a small publisher in Florida who put out a, a, um, a limited edition trade paperback version. 
And uh, that circulated a bit and gained me entrance into the Horror Writers Association where I made some more contacts. And that was my first uh, connection with a variety of other writers because I had never really considered doing this for a career up until that point. Um, thankfully, folks really enjoyed it. It was nominated for the top two literary awards that um, involved the horror genre, the International Horror Guild Award and the Bram Stoker Award. And so when that occurred... Then I got some interest from uh, major New York publishers and Pocket Books, a division of Simon & Schuster, immediately picked up the mass market rights, and they have published my work ever since. So, you know, I kind of fell into being in the right place at the right time with a book that many people enjoyed, and that kind of kick-started things. That happened back in 2001, and so I've I've been writing ever since then. And how did you end up becoming the president of the Horror Writers Association, and, and, and what does that involve? Well, the organization itself is about 700 members worldwide, and uh, it's an organization designed to assist professional horror writers, whether they're writing screenplays, novels, short fiction, nonfiction, what have you, uh, with enhancing their career. Well, when I joined back in 2001, we had an um, uh, shortly after that there was an election, and it was at the time an uncontested election. And I'm one of those folks that you know. Politics was my major in college. I hate to see things like uncontested elections, and just on a whim, I threw my hat into the ring. Uh, last minute, you know, one day before the deadline for declaring candidacy, all those kind of things. I didn't know many people, and surprise, surprise, I was actually elected. <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock. Then I had to actually sit down and say, okay, how do I do this? <laughs> you know, where, what direction do I want to take this organization? Where do we want to go? Things of that nature. Um, so I actually served in that position from October 2002 to October 2005. So uh, I ran the organization for the last three years. And basically it involves being their public figurehead, um, directing where you want it to go, targeting the key issues that, you know, you want the organization to be involved in, uh, and then generally just working to promote it and uh, market it as an organization of writers um, throughout the world. And it was quite enjoyable. It did wonders for my career because it brought me in touch with a tremendous amount of people who I admire and respect, for instance, like Peter Straub, who we mentioned earlier, and uh, made me friends with with a heck of a lot more writers than I probably ever could have met and approached on my own in that short time period. So uh, I'm very glad that I worked in that role for the last few years and and wouldn't trade it for the world. And how is horror doing as a genre at the moment? Is it it popular worldwide? Well, if you kind of look at um, the publishing world as a multi-story house, okay, and you've got Romance, which occupies about 55% of all fiction worldwide. Think of them as, you know, maybe the, the fourth through tenth stories of this, this big massive building. The sub, sub, sub seller is where horror is. <laughs> the only thing lower than horror is westerns. Um, but it's, it's got a de- very dedicated fan base. Um, and so, you know, it boomed really big in the, in the 80s when you had people like Stephen King, Peter Straub, Robert McCammon, uh, James Herbert, uh, Brian Lumley, all these people coming out and suddenly, you know, horror was a genre. It was a, a market niche in and of itself. Uh, in the 90s, there was this massive fallback. There had been such a flood, uh, such a glut on the market of horror novels in the late 80s mm. that it was very difficult to get a horror novel published in the 90s. By the time... 2000 came around, and for the last couple of years, we've seen a, a very comfortable resurgence in horror titles. You'll find, however, they're marketed under 
other names other than horror. You know, they'll be marketed as a thriller. They'll be marketed as suspense or supernatural fiction or things like that. For instance, I think my first novel doesn't even say horror on the spine. I think it says fiction, you know, just general fiction. Mm. Um, idea being that, okay, if we can get folks away from the idea that horror is only, you know, equivalent to the slasher flicks of the 1980s, like Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street or what have you, then we can get more quality fiction into the hands of more readers, and they might be more prone to pick it up. So uh, it's doing better than it has in the last decade, I'll say that, and I hope to see it continue on its upward climb. I was going to ask you if there was any correlation that you were aware of between the... um success of horror writing and horror films obviously from a from a hollywood perspective horror films seem to go through cycles and at the moment there's this whole j horror uh, mm-hmm. um phase that's very popular a lot of hollywood remakes of japanese and asian horror films and the, Certainly. and the originals becoming very popular particularly in film geek circles do do they go hand in hand do, do people go and watch horror films and then go and buy horror novels or I- they would. Um, they actually don't. They're almost two separate groups. You have some crossover. There's plenty of people who read horror novels that actually go see horror movies, but you don't get a wide group of people who regularly watch horror movies reading horror titles. And, you know, if someone could figure out how to combine those two groups and get that cross-pollination, they would do so well in this industry. And it's something that people have been trying to figure out for the last five or ten years. I don't understand it. I don't know why there isn't a a logical correlation between the two, because you would assume there would be. But they really don't cross their paths that often. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the one of the um, overwhelming impressions I've had in, in reading Heretic is that it reads to me like a film. Um, uh, like I can almost picture every right. scene, and and because your chapters, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that at the end of each chapter there's a there's a you know a, a major uh, twist or event, and it leads you into the next chapter. And I've I found myself sitting there lying in bed at one a.m. You know, t- telling myself I'm just going to read, you know, a couple of pages before I go to sleep, and you know, three chapters later, I'm going, I'll just read one more chapter. Um, th- there's, there's no good place to put it down, you know. But um, it, 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 was that deliberate? I mean, to me, it reads like um, a an adaptation for the screen, almost in that it's very fast. Uh, it's very, very. The, the imagery is very vivid. It almost speaks a film language to me. Have you already sold the film rights? Are you, I have you not. <laughs> we're, we're working on that at the moment, and that's something that I would love to do. I, I think the the reason it appears that way is due to my particular writing style. Um, it's partly intentional, partly just a result of the way I write. Most writers, when they sit down to write a novel, you know, they'll write chapter one, and then they'll write chapter two, and then they'll write chapter three, and so on. I can't write that way. I've tried my hardest to write it in sequence, and I can't possibly do it. Um, Normally, what I will do is sit down on any given day and write the scene that I'm feeling enthused to write about. You know, whatever imagery is in my head that day, that's the scene I'll write. So when I first look at a novel, I'll plot it out and I'll have a general outline that, you know, these are the, the 10 or 15 major scenes that have to go into the book. And then I'll stitch them together as I go along. And that way, you know, I'm writing, uh, you know, almost visual snippets, as you say, you know, visual scenes and then connecting them after the fact. So that's part of why you get that, you know, Moving along at a good 
clip pace to the story and why there's always that cliffhanger at the end to keep you moving along. Uh, you know, I consider it a real compliment when you tell me that, you know, hey, there isn't any really comfortable place to put it down because you want to keep finding out what happens next. And, and that's deliberate, and that's uh, it's a real joy to hear that you're enjoying it that way. Hi, I'm Kevin from the Geeks of Hazard podcast on the Podcast Network, a weekly podcast about geek culture encompassing gaming, technology, movies, comics, the occasional cocktail, and anything else that tickles our geek bone. Recently, we have been joined by Michael Davies, a low-level programming zombie that has recently worked on video games such as Heroes of the Pacific and Tomb Raider's Tomb Raider Legends. Whoa! Patience there, Michael. Sadly, due to his sudden human flesh-only diet, he has outgrown his wardrobe, and we now have an exclusive limited edition Heroes of the Pacific Developers t-shirt to give away. Subscribe to the Geeks of Hazard at geeksofhazard.thepodcastnetwork.com for details. Michael, don't! I I need that brain! It's, uh, what would it take to buy the film rights, uh, Joe? Is this a this negotiation we should have uh, <laughs> after the call? <laughs> Send me a number via email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Typically what happens, uh, and it's really interesting when you related to your earlier comment about how many horror films are remakes lately. There is such tremendously great horror fiction out there that is just practically written for the screen. And... The the trouble is catching the attention of the right people mm. to get some of those books in front of the acquisition folks at the major studios so they can see, you know, hey, yes, it is a gamble, you know, putting out the 15th Friday the 13th film, you know you're going to at least get a certain audience who's going to go there uh, versus the gamble of, of putting out a film on a, you know, a, a new literary work, what have you. Mate, but, if, they can, um, if they can make a film based on Doom... <laughs> sure. <laughs> Which I haven't seen yet, but I, I do a movie show on, on the podcast network as well, and one of my co-hosts who has seen it said it was, you know, it was 10 minutes of the game blown into a 90-minute film and um, very thin premise. <laughs> I mean, if they can turn that into a film, I reckon this has got a big chance. Well, I recently did an interview over on... Uh the Horror Channel, uh, which is an independent cable channel here in the States that's about to launch, that's devoted, you know, entirely to horror films and all that. And one of the questions the interviewer asked me was, you know, who would you have star in, in the film version of Heretic? And that was a fun little game to play, you know. That was going to be my next question. Because I know so, who I'd cast as Cade. But well, who? Tell me. No, no, you tell me. Who, would you, who did you say? Who would you cast? The uh, person I said was Viggo Mortensen. Oh. Coming on... Role is Aragon in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I can him with the same hairstyle, with the patch and the scar on his face from Cade, and he's got just about the right build and the right attitude. And so he was my first choice. He was kind of the guy I had in my mind as I wrote, and uh, so he's just kind of stuck there ever since. There you go. See, I was thinking Ed Harris, so I was way off mark. Well, see, but I had Ed Harris as one of the uh, one of the other team members, uh, Nick Olson, because he's a little bit older. And um, but again, you get that same you know action, same ability to say so much, which is a very simple expression. And Cade doesn't talk all that much, you know. He's he's not the most well, conversational he's, he's guy. Gotta, he's got to be able to do surly fairly right. well, I think. So your your process to writing a book is interesting. Oh, by the way, I should tell you that uh, the last um, 
author, last novelist I had on the mm-hmm. show, which was about a year ago, is a New York lady called Staten Rabin who wrote a novel on Napoleon, uh, which is being turned into a film at the moment with Al Pacino starring Napoleon and directed by Patrice Chereau, who made Queen Margot. So we've got a good pedigree on this show. Of uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully your luck will rub off and, you know, a month from now we'll be going and talking about the film version. <laughs> Uh, and hopefully I'll be the executive producer because I love being there. You go. For it. Um, <laughs> yeah, what do you think of Pacino as the role of Cade? We could we could make that happen. I, I'll get my people to call his people. Yeah, there you go. Um, Lunch. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> so your process of writing the book—that that sounds interesting. So you write the scene that is uh, you know most prominent in your mind that day, and then stitch it all together later. Correct. Huh. Uh, for instance, in my first novel, Riverwatch, which was uh, it was a classic, you know, cliche horror novel. Small town gets terrorized by you know this winged demon that is accidentally released from its underground lair, which was just a fun, fun uh, pastiche to write. But uh, in that novel, it's got 43 chapters. The first thing I wrote was chapter 35. Then I kind of went back and wrote chapter 14. Then I think it was chapter 37. And, and and it was just all over the map, and then you know. I'm guessing that's I'm guessing that's not how they teach writing at writing school. No. Right? <laughs> See, this is the the uh, advantage of being 19 years old at the time, not having a clue how to write, yeah. having not read anything about you know this is how you approach it or all the rules of writing, so to speak. I just did it my way, and it works for me. And you know I've been stuck doing it that way ever since. Drives my editor a little nuts when she says, you know. Let me see what what you've got so far, and I'm like, okay, but you know, it doesn't really stitch together real well. <laughs> you better read it with the outline on hand, so you know which chapter is which. <laughs> and so you're living in Arizona, correct? I'm in Phoenix. I've been to Phoenix. Can you believe it? I flew into Phoenix in February on my way to a, a conference? Ah. Arizona's uh, a weird place, man. It's it is. for an Australian, and, and it's like flying into a John Wayne Weston. <laughs> I'm a New Englander at heart. I grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts. So I miss the ocean. I miss the change of seasons and things like that. But I got to tell you, you know, here we are, almost January. It's 72 degrees outside, clear skies. It's this time of year that I love Arizona. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, when I say it's weird, I mean, it's, it's beautiful, but just that whole driving through the desert with, you know, the. Yeah. The Mises and the the cactuses and all that kind of stuff. It was it was a bit of a spin out. Especially I've been on a plane for about thirty hours at the time when I arrived there. I think um, it's oh, never people expect. You know, yeah. it's always they say, oh, it's browner than I thought. Oh, it's greener than I thought. You know, it's always unique. It is. It's very pretty, very picturesque in its own, as yeah. you say, very unique way. Hey, I wanted to ask you. Um, we were talking about uh, the horror genre. Um, the comics, there's been a lot of horror in comics over the last 15 years that have been very successful as well. And I'm thinking particularly of Hellblazer. Sure. And uh, and, and in some ways, uh, the setup for Heretic reminded me a little bit of Constantine and Hellblazer, this whole idea of a guy protecting uh, humanity from evil supernatural forces, although you know the, the premise of the story is completely different. Are you a fan of, of the, that sort of work, the comics uh, in this genre? I am. I am very much. And, and that's an area that I would personally like to do more 
in my own writing career. We're shopping right now, actually, a proposal to turn the entire Templar Chronicles, which is Heretic and the next two books in the series, A Scream of Angels and The Other Side of Darkness, into a comic miniseries. Um, and that would be a real joy for me to achieve. You know, I love those comics. Hellblazer, Preacher, um, you know, The Darkness, Witchblade, all the ones that that have hit in the last five or six years, you know, stuff written by uh, Stephen Niles, like 30 Days a Night, they have just created their own huge niche within the comic field. And to be able to join that crowd and write uh, in that group would, would just be a real career achievement for me, something that I've kind of got my eyes set on for 2006 and seven. And again, as as much as I said that the novel screamed uh, film screenplay to me, it could, as, you know, to me be as easily turned into... A comic. I mean, it has those nice, clean chapters and build-ups that you know, and very visual. Your writing is very visual. It's the visual imagery again. That, yeah. You know, if you translate it into the into the screen, you could certainly translate it into comic form. Yeah, and you know, comics are obviously uh, increasingly becoming a good breeding ground for films. That uh, for some reason, people in Hollywood, you know, obviously. <laughs> makes it easier on their imaginations if they can see pictures. It's like storyboard. Somebody's already storyboarded this film out for us. You know? <laughs> Saves half the work. <laughs> That's right. Good stuff. So when's uh, the next uh, episode of the Templar Chronicles? Scream of Angels, did you say it's called? Correct, correct. Well, that's the, uh, that's the unfortunate part of this whole process. Right now we have several foreign publishers who have dates scheduled for the release. Uh, Dromer Nas in Germany is coming out with the German edition. Exmo in Russia is coming out with the Russian edition. Both of those will be uh, end of 2006, start of 2007. Uh, currently, we don't have an English, publish, English language publisher for the series because of the recent sale of Simon & Schuster by Viacom. Um, all the major publishers in the U.S., the big five, are all owned by, you know, giant conglomerates. And Viacom recently sold Simon & Schuster to CBS. Pocket Books, my publisher, is owned by Simon & Schuster. And in the sale, they downsize. So a lot of the new writers who've only got one or two books to their credit, like me, have kind of been orphaned. You know, they've kind of said, okay, we're going to have Heretic released in October... We're going to wait and see how it works out before we commit to picking up the next couple in the series. The problem with that is, go back to my earlier comment, that it takes anywhere from 18 to 24 months to release a book once it's actually turned in. And it takes about a year for a publisher to, to see how well a book is doing. You've got this huge gap of time between book one and book two. And that's never any good for a series. So while we're still kind of hanging our hats to wait to see what Pocket Book does with Scream of Angels, my agent and I are currently talking to other publishers about picking up the next two for English language rights. So, you know, our foreign fans will get it a lot quicker, I think. <laughs> but we have to at least solve the issue in the next month or two so that we can have a definitive release date. You know, it sounds to me like uh, the publishing industry needs a major reinvention, re-engineering like the music industry oh, is going through at the moment. Most definitely. And it's facing a lot of the same problems that the music industry is facing. You know, digital rights management and different non-traditional ways to bring books to the market, things of that nature. Um, uh, it's just a huge change from what they're used to. Mm. And, uh, you know, for instance, here's a, an age-old uh, process. They have what's called stripping, where if I ship all, all you know... Uh, 100 copies of, of my book to a bookstore 
The bookstore puts them on the shelf for six weeks, which is about the typical time frame that a book will sit out there before it's reshelved or, or remaindered. What they can do is strip the, the front cover off the book and send the cover back to the publisher for 100% full credit for the book. It's the only industry I know of where you can destroy the product and still get a complete refund for it. Um, and that originated back uh, after the, the World War where you know they, they first invented mass market paperbacks, and they used to be sold in those spinning racks, you might remember from the, yeah, the 60s bubbles. or 70s. You see them in drugstores and stuff. Mm. And the idea was, you know, hey, we're going to make it more convenient for people to buy books, and the way we're going to get people to stock these things is tell them, hey, all you got to do is tear off the front cover and send it back to us for 100% credit. Well, that's been around now for the last 50 years. There's absolutely no real need for it anymore. It's a huge drain on resources, on you know product, paper, all those kind of things. But that's the way the industry works, so that's the way it's going to continue for the, the time being. So, yeah, I think there will be some huge changes over the next couple of years, hopefully to update the industry to where you know it should be in today's day and time. You mentioned Matthew Riley before. I, I seem to recall that he got started by actually self-publishing his first novel, didn't he? Correct. He did. And... Uh, um, I can't remember if it was Contest or Ice Station. Oh, it was Contest. Contest. Yeah, 1994. And then when Ice Station hit, it became such a huge bestseller that he turned around and re-released Contest afterwards, and, it, and Contest did remarkably well as well. Yeah. You know, this whole op- the, the opportunity that the internet provides for musicians and writers, I think, moving forward to, to self-publish and find... If you can find an audience that's willing to, you know... Either give you money directly, or if you can get advertisers and sponsors that are willing to to back your uh, creative endeavours in order to reach the audience that you attract with it. I think there's going to be increasing opportunities for creative people to you know take care of their own distribution, marketing, and promotion using online over the course of the next decade. Well, you've got things like in the music industry, you've got street teams where, you know, folks who go out and just by word of mouth talking about the, the artist, talking about, about the label, talking about the album, and you'll see huge changes, huge impact in the amount of people who are listening to these things. And, you know, there's got to be a way for the publishing industry, for writers and readers to connect at the same levels. And, uh, uh, you know, that would, that would be great to see. Mm. You mentioned Russia before. Um, have you seen the film Nightwatch? I have not. I've been waiting to. Um, one of those that are on the list that I just haven't gotten around to yet. How about you? Yeah, I saw it at the Melbourne Film Festival about six months ago, and it's, you know, again, it's one of those films that, um, from a horror perspective, uh, horror is not normally a genre I would go to see, but mm-hmm. again, it sort of dips into a little bit of history and uh, and the, the supernatural and tries to blend the two. I just I, I was thinking of that as well as I was reading your book. There's there's a, a couple of precedents for this genre in the in a film sense, uh, in terms of you know the mixing of history and uh, horror, which I think provides a you know a great roadmap for Heretic hitting the big screen. Well, and, and another correlation there is Nightwatch is based on a series of books by a Russian publisher, a Russian writer. That's right. So, yeah. One instance where you know the book came out first, and somebody liked the premise enough that they took it to the screen, along with I, I think it's two uh, sequels that come out after it as well. Yeah, I think the the first uh, sequel is already out in Russia, and we're just waiting for it to be released uh, internationally. But yeah, I mean, and it's getting huge reviews. I mean, it was a great film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic, Joe. Well, uh, people can 
go to your website, uh, Joseph Nassis, N-A-S-S-I-S-E.com. That's how you pronounce it, right? Nassis? Yeah. Very good. Or they can uh, check it out. We'll put some links up on the website. They can check it out. Check out the book at Amazon. Google Amazon. Is there any, any other places they should go to get information Those on you or the book? You know, it's it's available in any any major bookstore. I'm trying to think. Uh, Galaxy Books in Melbourne, if uh, I have the name right, actually carries it down in your neck of the world. But uh, over here, any major bookstore chain or or uh, you know Barnes and Noble, Amazon, what have you, they all carry it. Uh, so it's pretty easy to find. Good stuff, Joe. And uh, we might hear you uh, on the podcast again in the near future. We won't say too much about that, though. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. All right, mate. Thanks for coming on the show today. It was great to chat to you, and um, uh, I've got to go back now and read the last quarter of the book. I, I, I can't sit around and keep talking. My pleasure. Enjoy it, man. Cheers, man. Bye. Take care. All right. Hey. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, from the beginning. That's right. I'm back at the end. I waited around for the entire podcast just to tell you that it was brought to you by Motorola. Yeah, dude. I gotta get some nachos. I am so hungry. Are there any near your house? The podcast network. Real power can't be given. It must be taken.